0: morning good morning Got a number of items up here our children's ministry last week was a week ahead since there's no classes this morning uh, on the Ephesians series and wrapping that up and um, they were working on the Ephesians 6 armor of God and they, they made some armor so here's I guess the shield that's pretty that's pretty fun there's pictures on that It's in the helmet. I don't know if they left this up here so I could wear it. I don't think that's going to happen for very long. But the armor of God is what we're talking about this morning. It's important to know as we get into the armor of God that it's not just the part uh, where we get to the end of the letter and Paul's like, let me just throw out something totally random. Let me talk about uh, spiritual warfare. Let me talk about prayer Um, out of nowhere. What Paul is doing is what any good speaker or writer does, and at the end of writing a letter where he's trying to convince you to live a certain way because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want to summarize everything that I've been talking about and and make it really come home uh, to tie in uh, to what you need to know and how you need to put all of this into practice. Because it's real. It's real. The spiritual realities of this world have an impact on the way you live and the world that we live in. And so he's calling people to live accordingly. Now, for us today, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Scooby-Doo. If you've ever watched, and there's there's been several generations of Scooby-Doo over the years. Uh, But the premise of pretty much any Scooby-Doo show, especially the earlier ones, is pretty much the same. It follows a formula uh, every week. And so when you watch Scooby-Doo, you turn it on, uh, and Scooby, who is a dog that can almost speak English, and his teenage friends that are in a big van that's, that's called Mystery Inc., uh, they travel from location to location to go solve mysteries uh, about uh, ghosts and monsters and um, the unexplainable. And when they go into these villages, they always get there, and someone says, hey, Everything here was going great, and then all of a sudden this monster showed up, this ghost showed up. And the Mystery Inc. team that's trying to solve all these mysteries has a range of people that are responding to this monster in different ways. Most of them immediately are skeptics. They say, listen, there's no such thing as ghosts and monsters, we don't believe in any of that. And a couple of them say, I don't know, things seem pretty scary over here. Uh, And then the rest of the show is about them trying to solve are there things that are spiritual and monsters and ghosts in the world or is everything just people at the end of every episode what you find out is it is of course just people it is someone who's a main character and there's always some reveal where they take the mask off the monster and say something like mr jenkins the bank manager it was you all along and then they explain the mystery of the show well, the thing that's interesting about Scooby-Doo is that Scooby-Doo is telling in kind of this imaginary animated uh, world of children's stories uh, what we have come to experience in the larger Western world over the past 50 years, which is, yeah, it may seem like there are spiritual things going on here, but in reality, it's all just humans. Scooby-Doo is playing with the narrative of is there spiritual warfare, is there ghosts, or is there a spirit world around us that we can't see? Or at the end of the day, is everything just what we can measure and observe and feel and sense? And if you can't measure it, if science can't study it, then it doesn't exist. Scooby-Doo and his pals were right all along. And that question is very live in the world that we live in, and that's important. There's a guy named Charles Taylor, uh, who is kind of the opposite of Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo is kind of a fun little children's show. Charles Taylor is something that's about the most dense reading you could ever find. And so most people that encounter Charles Taylor uh, find someone who've written about the things he writes about so that they can understand what he's saying. But I want to share a little bit with you of what Charles Taylor says about the world that we live in, because I think it's really important before we get into spiritual warfare and putting on the armor of God to understand why it's so foreign to us to think that way. See, Charles Taylor writes that in the world that we live in, in the United States today, and for the last century, it's becoming more and more this way. um, He talks about how we've become a secular world. And there's a couple ways to think about that. He says, one way to think about it is just uh, someone who has a job as an accountant or uh, as a cashier or someone that has a job in the world has a secular job, whereas someone who has a job at a church has a like, kind of a religious job. He says, that's not what I'm talking about. You can think about secular as being someone who, who, who says, well, I have worldly bibli- or I have godly biblical values. But a secular person would say, I have secular values. My values are not rooted in God or religion or faith of any kind. They're secular. And so there's kind of this, this division between uh, the ways of God and the ways of the world. And the ways of the world are seen as, as secular. Charles Taylor says, that's not really what I'm talking about either. Here's what Charles Taylor is saying when he says that we live today in a secular age. Is that we as as Everyone, Christians uh, and non-Christians alike, that the, the default setting of your mindset is that God's not going to show up or interrupt your life in any way. That, that we really, when we pray, think of prayer as something that's therapeutic because we don't think that God can come into this world and interrupt what's going on. We imagine God is, is kind of a clockmaker who maybe put the clock together and set it all in motion and wound the clock and then set it into, into action and then step back and then says, let's just see how this all unfolds. The people that are there have free will, but I'm not going to get involved in things. We imagine that even though we expect, as Don talked about earlier, when we read the New Testament, we see Jesus performing incredible miracles, feeding thousands, being resurrected from the dead, and we're told that we too will receive this resurrection. And we read these stories about miracles, but none of us expect miracles in our lives today because we live in a secular age. We don't need spiritual explanations for physical realities. Uh, I was one time I was going to um, a, a number of meetings with someone and we were talking frequently about prayer. And, I, and you may have heard me share this before. Um, but one of the things that, that I'd been talking to this person about as we'd been visiting extensively about prayer is, is they said, do you think that God's not big enough to show up and interrupt the world on your behalf? I said, it's not that I think God isn't big enough. I absolutely believe that God has the power to do anything that I might ask him to do. What I struggle to think is that God can get small enough to be present to the little things that I might need to pray about in the midst of an entire world that's going to him with really big prayer requests. And so I began working on that. And and so the next week as I was going to my meeting, we were going to be following up on that. It was a really, it was one of those hot Oklahoma summer days uh, where it just feels like you're in a blow dryer just walking down the street. And as I'm walking down the street, uh, I said, God, I just, if I could just have a moment rest from this heat as I'm walking into this meeting about prayer. And that moment, a cool breeze blew on my face and a cloud blew in front of the sun and I went, Man, what a weird coincidence that that would happen right as I asked God for that. And then I realized how much I've been affected by living in a secular age. Archbishop uh, Archbishop, uh, William Temple was talking about this dynamic uh, on another occasion. He says, you know, there's a lot that's being said in the world today about spiritual warfare. and, And here's what I know. When I pray, coincidences seem to happen all the time. And when I don't pray, they just don't seem to happen. And you realize that his comment's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. That what he's indicating is that we live in a world that's so wired towards skepticism, and so wired to not have any expectation that God show up, that when we pray for something and it comes true, we go, man, what are the odds? What are the odds that the meteorological forces of planet Earth would align to match my prayer in that moment? Man, weird. Isn't that unusual? Because we have a Scooby-Doo mentality. We don't actually believe that the spiritual can show up and and intervene in our lives. And this causes us all kinds of problems. When we come to a passage like Ephesians chapter six verses ten, and here's what Ephesians six ten says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We hear a passage like that that's talking about Satan and it's talking about spiritual forces and it's talking about uh, authorities and, and powers of the dark world and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And, and we, as, as Americans in 2021, have this desire and tendency to kind of give it a wink and a nod and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spiritual forces, authorities and principalities, right. We get it. We've seen the end of Scooby-Doo where we find out that all along it's just been humans throughout the entire show. But we can't ignore passages like this that call us to recognize that the spiritual reality is reality. That call us to be aware uh, that you don't have to believe in Satan and the spiritual authorities of the dark world for them to cause you problems in your life. You don't have to believe in Satan for him to come after you. You don't have to. The Bible tells us that there is a spiritual reality that directly affects our physical world and that they're married. And just the idea that we separate those two in our minds is an invention of the past several hundred years. In Paul's world, when he's writing to the Ephesians, uh, if you asked him, Paul, are you talking about the physical world or the spiritual world? He would look at you and say, that's one world. That's one world. The physical world is completely infused with the spiritual, and the spiritual does its work in the physical. What are you talking about with this this kind of division? That really becomes uh, part of Greek thought that infects our world today, but it's not really part of Paul's thought. For Paul, we need the armor of God to deal with spiritual threats in our physical world and in the spiritual world because they're one battle that's being fought in our one life. And when we think about these kind of realms of spirituality and the realm of of, of how these things affect us, I think we tend to place them into kind of three categories. And for most of us, we like to get into one of them and only think about the one and not worry about the other two. And here's what I mean by that. I think that a lot of times when we talk about uh, the armor of God, which is about truth and faith and peace, and we think, well, what, where do those battles take place? We think of them being the battle of the mind, the battle of the heart. They become internal to us. And when we allow the spiritual realm to be limited to my internal stuff, what that does is it makes it to where if I can have peace on the inside, then it doesn't really matter what's going on on the outside. If I can have faith on the inside, it doesn't really matter what's going on on the outside. And I can get all internalized. And the problem is that over and over again, through this letter, Paul has an expectation that your faith will lead to action, that peace will infuse your relationship and change how you interact with people, that, that love isn't just a feeling and an emotion that's internal to you, that love becomes something that you actively demonstrate and live out in the lives of the people that you're around. And so if Paul has this expectation that the effect of spirituality on us will impact how we truly interact with people and how we live in the physical world, we can't just let the armor of God be something that exists exclusively in the internal realm. So the second realm that that some of us get into is this idea that there is this this spiritual evil that exists in the fallen world, and we need to push back against it in all the different ways that it manifests itself in the world around us. And, And when we expect that to be the case, what we start looking for is spiritual evil in injustices, and in poverty, and in violence, and in broken relationships. And we look around in the world around us and we're like, this world is so broken. And if we are the kingdom of God and we have faith and love and peace, then we need to start bringing that faith and love and peace and truth and all this armor. We need to use this armor to defeat social injustice, to defeat all that is evil and wrong in the world. Wherever there is poverty, we need to try and lift people up. Wherever there is racism, we need to try and destroy it. Wherever there is uh, oppression, we need to lift up the oppressed. That we need to be people who call for freedom and that we need to be people that call for equality. And we can get really involved in the world and trying to combat all of the evil that demonstrates itself every day you can also get so busy fighting social evils that you forget to work on your own inside stuff. And even then, you're really only focusing on the the worldly plane. And so the third realm where we tend to think about spiritual warfare is in the spiritual realm. And we start thinking about angels and demons and exorcisms. And we start reading the scriptures and thinking, man, there are things going on in here that are amazing and that are, that are unbelievable and that we don't see happening in our world. And God, we just want to ask that your spiritual forces will have victories over the spiritual forces of Satan. And we get really involved in prayer and spirituality and we let the spirit be, begin to shape us and form us and that all of these things begin to happen because we're so focused on the spiritual realm. Except there's so many Christians that are so spiritually focused that they're of no earthly good. And so it's essential when we get into any conversation about spiritual warfare, or about Satan, or about God's angels, or about thinking about what it means to put on the armor of God, or to have all of these character traits of Jesus and God that are given to us by the Spirit so that we can put them on as armor to be part of God's army. Anytime we have any conversation about that, we need to make sure that we understand that this battle needs to be fought on three different fronts, that it has to exist in the internal realm where we are working on our own hearts and minds and souls, that it also exists in the earthly realm where we go and push back against evil wherever it rears its head. That we as people of God realize that the kingdom of God is in a battle with the forces of Satan in this world, and it's our job to make this world look more like God's kingdom than Satan's. We push back against that wherever we can with the tools God gives us and not with Satan's tools. One of the most important things that I think Christians forget today is that if you try and defeat Satan using Satan's tools of anger, hatred, and violence, only Satan can win. You can only defeat Satan using the tools of God and the tools of Jesus. We lose that. So we so often lose battles before they start because we're only going in with the tools of Satan, which are anger, violence, greed, a desire for our own power and way in a world that really needs us to have humility, compassion, grace, mercy, and love. And we have to remember that the third realm, the third front of the battle where we need the armor of God is the spiritual realm. That you can't just go about your life trying to have Christianity as kind of a self-improvement plan for your insides and a global improvement plan for the outside world and not interact with the spirit realm. Because the spirit realm is real. Scooby-Doo gets it wrong. The secular world that we live in fails to understand that every single day God shows up and interrupts and makes a difference in our lives, if by no other reason than by simply having the Spirit dwell in us, his people. God exists in this world and is interrupting in this world and is breaking through by the power of his kingdom. That's us, his people. It's a three-front war. And if when this armor is described in Ephesians chapter 6, we should expect it to have internal and external and spiritual implications. And So when he continues writing, this is Paul to the Ephesian church in verse 13, he says, "...therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand." There's two things you need to hear in verse 13. The first one is this, is that the day of evil will come in your life. It's not an if, it's not a maybe, it's not a perhaps, it's not a just in case. The armor of God isn't insurance. The armor of God is there because evil is going to exist in this world, and it's going to come at you. And when it does, you need to be ready. You don't need to have the armor scattered around in your life like when it gets here, maybe I'll be able to find it and figure out how to put it on and get it ready. What what Paul is saying is always carry these traits. Always carry these spiritual gifts with you. Evil is coming. Be ready. And the goal when you, you put the armor on is that when evil shows up is that you'll be able to stand. That you'll be able to persevere. It's not so you can be some Rambo for Jesus running around being violent all the time and and some crusader for the cross. That's not what the armor of God is for. The armor of God is so that when evil comes at you, you can stand and you can persevere and that you can can get through whatever it is that Satan throws at you. You don't even have to worry about it because God's got you. You've got his armor. You're going to be okay. So stand firm then with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Paul goes through this list of the armor, and I want to hit each of these briefly and talk about how they, they have, are intended to have an internal impact and an external impact. And he starts by talking about truth and the belt of truth, and in a world where doubt is connected to faith. It's one, of the, it's one of the major characteristics of the secular age that we live in, is that all people who have faith, that their faith is accompanied by some level of doubt. And that that's just part of the faith experience in the world that we live in. Now, the thing that's interesting uh, for Charles Taylor is he also talks about how in the world that we live in, all doubters doubt their doubt. There's an incredible opportunity in the world we live in today because people that don't believe in God do think there is something spiritual out there. And so there's opportunities for us to engage with them and say, let me tell you about that which is spiritual. Let me tell you about my experience. Let me tell you how the Holy Spirit can come in and shape your life and and, and impact the world. Those conversations connect and resonate with people today who doubt their doubt. Christians who have faith also uh, wrestle with wondering what it means and how to live it out. And and that's just kind of baked in to the world that we live in today. But we need to know that part of the armor of God is built into this uh, idea that God is truth. God is truth. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is truth. And it's interesting because so many of the ways that we think about truth today uh, are about taking a way of thinking or a practice or something, a philosophy that someone gives you. And we ask, let me try this on and I'll see if it works. And if it works, then it's true. Christianity is not like that. Christianity works because it's true. The truth of it is rooted in the reality of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. It's a historical event that's indisputable in history. It's indisputable. And that truth makes everything else uh, an anchor for us in in our journey of faith so that, that we can have confidence to resist doubt because of the truth of God, the truth of Jesus. And the armor of God helps us to persevere when Satan comes at us with doubt, the truth of God pulls us through. The next one is the breastplate of righteousness. You know, One of the things that we've talked a lot about through this Ephesians study uh, is that we were once separated from God, and now as a result of Jesus, we're brought near. Uh, In a minute, we'll talk about salvation. When Paul talks about salvation, he's talking about how you got saved from your sins so that you can be with God forever. When he's talking about righteousness, what he's talking about is how Jesus makes you right so that you can come into the people of God. For Paul, righteousness is about inclusion in the family of Abraham so that you can be one of God's chosen people. Righteousness is about becoming an adopted child child of God. Righteousness is about the others who are adopted children of God becoming your brothers and sisters. And so on the one hand, righteousness is internal. It's about making you right when you used to be wrong, making you alive when you used to be dead. But the implications of righteousness is that it brings you into a family which has these responsibilities for connecting and loving one another and meeting one another's needs of being united when the world says you should be divided righteousness has an internal impact and an external difference that it's it's both of those and that spiritually it places us in Christ at the right hand of God already it brings us into that relationship so it it functions in the internal the external and the spiritual all of those when we look at how uh, we have feet fitted with readiness from the gospel of peace, so often when we think about the peace that comes uh, from Christ, we think about, uh, what's the children's song? I got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. Uh, peace that passes understanding down in my heart. It's true because it's, it's alliteration and it goes fast, right? Uh, but we think about peace as something that's internal. I'm filled with peace. I'm not anxious. I'm not worried. I don't have fear i'm not angry i'm peaceful it's an internal thing but even the piece of the armor that paul assigns it to feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace there's this idea that that it should launch you into action and we don't often connect peace with action but paul does Paul understands that if you have this internal peace from being united with Jesus through the good news, that it should launch you into a mission of peacemaking. That you should become someone who brings peace where there's chaos. That you go into someone's life who's in turmoil and you become an agent of peace in their life. That you go to someone uh, who has, has violence and anguish and, and conflict in their life, and you go in and you say, listen, I want to help bring peace into your relationships, into your home, into your country. As people who are followers of Jesus, we are peacemakers that we follow the Prince of Peace and that His kingdom as it goes from the spiritual into this world should cause there to be less violence, anguish, fear, anxiety, chaos, and turmoil. But we have to be the people that bring that and make that peace in the world. He talks about the shield of faith which extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. And this is another one of those that when we think about faith, we think about it happening between our ears. That faith is something that is in our mind. I have faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He lived and died and that He raised from the dead. And as a result of that and my belief in that, by grace I'm saved as if my mental assent, my agreement with the facts of history is in and of itself enough for me to be saved and to be a Christian. Faith is more than just an internal between your ears kind of thing. It is that, it starts with that. But when Paul talks about faith, Uh, And and there's been much written about this. The English word for faith has this idea of belief and mental agreement. But the Greek word faith is is richer. It it incorporates an action item. It incorporates that it's a faith that is so strong that it begins to orient your whole life around the thing that you believe in the most. It's really closer to the English word allegiance. We have allegiance to Jesus. We have allegiance to God. As a result of our belief and faith in Christ, we have an allegiance that says, I will act first and foremost out of the interest of what I believe about Jesus. And if I start acting out of my allegiance to anything else, in a greater way than my allegiance to Jesus, then I've got a faith problem because my faith has gotten out of order. Because faith has this external component. Faith has an active element that requires us to put into practice what we believe in our minds, that it shapes our lives, and when we begin to put it into practice, begins to shape the world around us because of our allegiance to King Jesus. Jesus. He talks about the helmet of salvation. And this is a huge one. The helmet of salvation is important because uh, Paul has written already in Ephesians about how we were once dead in our transgressions. We were doomed to destruction. And now because of Jesus and being in Christ, we now have life. Life. And this is the essence of salvation and what it means to be saved. And Paul is pointing out, listen, if you have that life, then Satan can't hold death over you. We sing about uh, death, death, oh, where is your sting? You see, death was the final tool of Satan that Jesus destroyed. Satan held death as the power in his hand, and Jesus, when he got out of the tomb, destroys it destroys Satan's power of death that he held over us. And now Jesus says, listen, Satan doesn't own you or your death anymore. I've given you life, and if I can be resurrected from the dead, and you're in me, this is Ephesians, you're seated in Jesus at the right hand of God, receiving that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We now have that power. And for Paul, this changes everything. It doesn't just mean that I can say, man, I came out of the waters of baptism and my sins were washed away and now I'm saved. Praise God that I'm saved. I can now have internal uh, peace and happiness and joy and hope because I know that I'm saved and I won't be dead forever. For Paul, what this means is that you now have resurrection power. And it means Satan no longer has the death power that he once held over you. And if you have salvation, this protects you from death. And if you have salvation and this resurrection power, then why are you living such timid little lives? This is a mystery to Paul, that, that some would have a spirit of timidity and fear while having the resurrection power. And so he tells Timothy, like, listen, you are not called to a spirit of timidity and fear, but to one of courage and one of action. And for Paul, if we understand the helmet of salvation, then we should be boldly, boldly living as Jesus' people with His resurrection power in a world where we can look at Satan and go, what power do you have over us? You don't have any power. Jesus destroyed your power. And then He shared it with us who are in Him so that we can be the kingdom people transforming the world into the kingdom of God and not the empire of Satan, which was crushed when Jesus took His power away. Why do we live such timid lives? when we should be wearing the helmet of salvation. Paul says we've got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You have to remember, when Paul's writing this about the Word of God, there's not a Bible that exists. There's not a New Testament. Partly we know that because he's literally still writing a lot of it. There are letters that are still being written, gospels that are still being written. Put together and, and, and stories that are being told and compiled and it's going to be about 300 years before the New Testament in the Bible takes the form that we have it in today different language but the form of books and chapters and and collections that we have today it takes about 300 years but Paul's writing this and he says the Word of God which is the, the sort of the Spirit which is the Word of God should be able to help you to fight against Satan should be able to fight, help you to fight in this spiritual warfare that really exists. And when we think about what the Word of God means in a pre-Bible situation, does that, now am I saying that the Bible is not the Word of God? No, it absolutely is the Word of God. Paul would have done anything to have his hands on what we have today to understand the full depth and breadth of the Word of God as we get to access it. And we should celebrate that. But Paul, when he writes this, probably has in mind something more like what the psalmists write about. What Jesus had in mind when Satan is tempting him in the wilderness and Jesus says, Satan, man does not live, humans do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I am sustained by the words of God, not by food. The psalmist writes, and this has that internal idea that that the word of God guides us, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Word of God helps us to know what is right and what is wrong. It guides us so that we can have confidence that we're going in the right direction. God's Word provides that for us. It's a lamp to our feet. But The psalmist also writes that I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that there's something to be said about when we ingest the word of God to such an extent that it becomes a part of our heart belief, our heart language. That that when the word of God is in our, our heart in that way, that it affects our ability to resist sin that it affects our ability to withstand the temptations of Satan. It affects our ability to bring God's will into this world, that God's Word in the heart of believers begins to shape their lives and actions. So the sword of the Spirit is internal in that it takes us and shapes us and guides us, and it's external in that it then shapes our actions and changes the world as a result of our believing in it and putting it in to practice. Paul in verse 18 says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. There's a paragraph break in most translations right before verse 18. And there's some people who think there shouldn't be. That, that what Paul is doing is saying that prayer is part of the armor of God that prayer covers all of this. And it's when we pray to God with power in all kinds of circumstances and situations that it's then that God fully is able to, to, by the power of the Spirit, come into us and allow us to stand against all that Satan throws at us. Paul says, "...pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains." Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul finishes the letter to the Ephesians by telling them that Tychicus, who's delivering the letter, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Studying Ephesians has been so good for me. It's been rich. It's been fun to work through the text and to see how for Paul, the gospel story of Jesus Christ should transform the way that we live and the way that we become new people and it should change how we're oriented to our brothers and sisters in Christ and it should break the divisions of this world and bring unity that's in Christ to all of us. That we should be living as people of power and not as people of timidity. That we should be people that wear the armor of God and stand against all of Satan's threats and challenges against us. I wanna encourage you, read through it again and ask yourself, God, what can I receive from this letter? And if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this letter will explain to you exactly why you should. Because Jesus Christ emptied himself, becoming nothing, obedient, even to death on a cross, so that we might be saved and be placed in him, receiving his power, his life, his resurrection kingdom is lived out in the church. That when we come together and get our spiritual gifts and we're united, that we have the ability to live in a way that will be an incredible force in the world that we live in you're transformed on the inside so that you can transform the world on the outside. And if you've never responded to that gospel, I want to invite you to do that this morning. And I want to end this series with the blessing that Paul ends the letter with. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. If you need to respond to the gospel this morning or have any other needs, uh, please come forward as we stand and worship together. Jesus.